few years ago, in the middle of the day, what seemed like clear skies and just a regular calm day in Seaford, uh, Zion was in the backyard playing on the ground and nothing seemed unusual or strange and I heard one of the loudest noises I've ever heard in my life. It was like if you could take a, like a buzz going, eh, but magnify that by a thousand to where the walls shook. And I ran outside and Zion was on the ground crying and I, couldn't, and I was like, did lightning just strike my boy? And I couldn't figure out what was happening to him and I looked up and there were kids who had been walking on the sidewalk and all, everyone was holding still. No one was moving. And what had happened was a transformer on the power line had gotten overloaded and it had blown. And all that extra power, which is normally going through the transformer, was so strong it actually melted the power line, popped the power line, and the power line was on the ground right next to the sidewalk where these kids who'd been walking along and all of a sudden the most terrifying noise in the universe just went wham and then they're standing there going, no, like it was, it was eerie and freaky. When Jesus died, darkness covered the, the region and it was the middle of the afternoon. And the scripture tells us that when he died, he let out a loud cry and there was a sound kind of like thunder and it says rocks were cracked in two. Crack! You imagine the sound it ta- of, a, of a huge boulder breaking in half? And it says that dead people were raised. I don't know if you remember this detail. People came to life, started walking around the city. Something just went wrong. What just happened? There was a, a, a voltage burst. Some sort of power explosion just happened when Jesus died. And then there's this other detail that is so critically theologically important. When the rock split, when the darkness is here, when this loud rumbling of thunder, when these people, when Jesus issues this loud cry, guess what else happens? Does anyone remember the detail? What happened in the temple? This massive curtain that's there to protect people from the holiness of God is ripped from top to bottom. That thing goes and the closest thing, I think a lot of times we read these stories in the Bible and we, we don't understand, like, like the sound of the mighty rushing wind 50 days from now we will celebrate Pentecost and it talks about a sound came into the room like the sound of a mighty rushing wind and we go, oh, that's nice. And we don't recognize that'd be like putting a jet engine inside this room. Here's my point. If this burst of power happens as Jesus dies. Oops, some people came back to life, my bad. Like it doesn't look like it was intentional. It looks like it was a voltage leak in the system, some sort of explosion that couldn't be contained. And if that's what the death of Jesus released, what do you suppose is released when he's raised from death? I have just one question that's sort of driving all of my thoughts today and it's this. Do we believe half the gospel? Are we, are, are, is much of the church of Jesus, including us, living like the death of Jesus is true, but the resurrection might not yet be? 
It's just a question. And and Romans asks it this way. Paul asks it this way in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. He says, if when we were God's enemies, the cross reconciled us and made us God's friends, then how much more, now that we are God's friends, will the resurrected Jesus save us? And that word save, man, I gotta tell you, we Protestants are just not the best at hearing that word correctly. Because when we hear save, what do we immediately think? Going to heaven when we die. When it means full-scale, total deliverance from that dominion of darkness into the dominion of light to where now we are living in this kingdom. When Peter's in prison, Peter's in prison and an angel comes and uh, opens the gate, undoes his chains. He thinks he's dreaming, if you remember the story. And, And this is what the angel says to Peter. Go stand in the temple courts and tell the people all the words of this new life. Why? Why do, I just love the details. Angel, why? Angel, why? Why do you have to stress that Peter has to make sure he tells the whole gospel? Why? Go stand in the temple courts and tell the people all the words. Don't leave anything out. All the words of this new what? It's it's not when I die one day, I'll be free. It's not one day, I'll fly away, oh glory. I will. That's in the gospel. So what if there was a cross but no resurrection? Well, that's the Old Testament image, isn't it? Those animals didn't come back to life. You killed those animals, you got forgiven, God didn't kill you, you can stay a worshiper, you can be his follower. Something different happens in Jesus that, that, that they were not prepared to grasp. And I think we Protestants are still not prepared to grasp. We get forgiveness, we get that, okay, now we don't go to hell, now we go to heaven. But now what? Well, manage your sin, try to be a good person. Try a little harder. Come to church and tithe. I'm not even trying to be down on us. I'm one of us. I'm looking at my life and saying, there needs to be more resurrection in my life because it's certainly available. There needs to be more intimacy and love in my life because it's certainly available. Why is it available? That, That curtain tore. And guess what? Jesus is not dead. He's alive. And because he's alive... How much more? How much more will he transform me? How much more will he empower me? How much more will he breathe? How much more will he speak? How much more will the Savior himself train and teach us what it means to be God's kids? If all he does is die, if all he does is die, we can be forgiven. But if he comes back to life and pours out his spirit on every one of us, then this thing is absolutely a game changer. Look, in the Old Covenant, Moses went up the mountain of the Lord by himself. Why? Why was he by himself? Because the rest of the people were just too terrified. And you could say, well, those people are idiots. No, they were aware of their sin. And they were aware of God's holiness. But when Moses went up the mountain of the Lord, it says there was this 
darkness. This, you, God's presented in multiple ways. He's presented as a fire, but he's also presented as this cloud of darkness. And it says that Moses entered the thick darkness where God dwelled. And then it says he was there 40 days and nights with no food or drink. And I don't think he felt like it was 40. I bet he thought it was like an hour. Because God, when you're experiencing God, there's strange things happening with time. Anyone? So I don't think he felt like it was 40 days or he would have probably been in a hurry to get back down the mountain before these fools get sinning again, which they did. But he comes out of the thick darkness where God dwells and his face is glowing. Now Paul, in 2 Corinthians, he says, one man, one man went up the mountain in the old covenant, this ministry of death that the cross is the fulfillment of, the reality of, in that covenant, one man went up. And when he came back, the reflection, the afterglow, we can't handle But now, in this covenant in which we all, with unveiled faces, reflect the glory, the beauty of the Lord, you see, this is a ridiculously different picture. But again, if there's a cross but no resurrection, we can't, with unveiled faces, reflect the glory. Rather, Jesus goes up the mountain, dies, and then we don't get killed. But because he's alive, we get access. I was talking with somebody yesterday and they were saying, the church thinks with the wrong foundation first. We gotta get our sonship as the foundation, not discipleship as the foundation. Because we have people who don't know the love of the Father and they don't know the intimacy of the Father and they don't know that they aren't alive to sin. They don't know that they are dead to sin. They don't know that they have the spirit of Jesus dwelling within them. They haven't grasped that they are now ascended and seated with Christ in heavenly places, that they have been given the place in the Father's affections that Jesus has, but they've also been given the authority that Jesus has handed us as his representatives on earth. They don't grasp, this lady was saying to me, they don't grasp who they are now that Christ has died and raised and that we're in him. And so they're trying to be disciples and build a life for him instead of abide in him and let him live this life through them. And the difference is a heavy burden, a constantly messed up conscience, an in and out, he loves me, he loves me not. God is a stress, not a comfort. This whole, there's this whole thing, and she was calling it the religious spirit. It was a fun conversation. But I think my question is, what if there was only a cross and no resurrection? And what does it mean? What does Romans 5.10 mean if while we were God's enemies, the death made us his friends? How much more, now that we are his friends, does this resurrection power save? If you know me, you know I've been kind of messed up by that question for a number of years now, trying to figure that out. I keep coming back over and over to the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews is written to a people who are persecuted. It's written to a people who are going through a really hard time. They started out with Jesus. Now times are getting tough and they're tempted to back away because the cost is high. 
Too much endurance feels required. Too much shame. Too much broken relationship. Too much stealing of your property. Too, just too much trouble and hardship. Maybe we'll just back off. And so this person, I don't know who wrote it, writes this book saying that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than uh, the law. He's better than the old priesthood. He's better than Moses. He's, he's just on and on and on. Jesus is better. He's the true and better sacrifice. He's the true, true and better. You, you name it, he's got it. And so his argument goes on and on and on. So the, his point being, don't turn away from the true and better. Don't turn away from the light to go back to shadows. Don't, don't, don't save your skin and lose the very treasure that's at the heart of this whole gospel. And in Hebrews 7, one of the things that he argues is that Jesus is better than the old covenant priesthood because they not only had to offer sacrifices for the people all the time, but they had to offer sacrifices for themselves. And then they died. So they had to keep getting replaced. And the net effect of the whole thing is that constantly, day after day, year after year, oh, we're sinners, you're holy. 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 And that the outcome of that is that the people, ironically, through the system designed to get them close, to draw near, ends up in their minds and in their hearts being a reason for them to stay on the surface and back away slightly. And God's great dream, if you know anything about the Bible, God's great dream for the whole Bible is he is trying to form a people with whom he can live. The religious word is dwell or abide. I'm trying to figure out how to break it down into normal English for us. A people where he can be at home with us. That's his great dream. That's God's great dream. And it's so frustrated. Throughout the Old Testament, you find God is the one frustrated. He's not getting his way. Amen. That's theology that some people don't like. God's sovereign. He always get what he, gets whatever he wants. No, he can do whatever he wants, but that doesn't mean he gets whatever he wants. As anyone who's ever had children knows by being in charge, being in authority doesn't give you what you want. It just... And God's great dream is a people with whom he can abide. So if he dies, if Jesus dies, then we have forgiveness, but we still have this problem. We, in, our, in, in our, who we are, we're still sinners. We're just now forgiven sinners. And I kid you not, that is what a large portion of Christians believe is true today. The saints are forgiven sinners. God loves us, and it's a great mystery. Try not to sin, but you can't help it. It's who you are. And I want to argue they're living as though there's no resurrected Christ. But there is. He is. Hebrews 7. Jesus is better than the priests because he doesn't die. And guess what? He doesn't offer sacrifice day after day after day. He only did it once. And that was more than enough. More than enough. The blood of Jesus as infinitely worthy, as pure and spotless. That's enough to cover the sin of a million worlds. Amen. Far worse than this one. Yeah, but Tim, we, we can't really change until we die and get rid of our sin nature. Why do you think he died? Read your Bible. It's Romans 6. Amen. Yes. You were crucified with Christ. 
You died in him. He did not die instead of you so that you wouldn't have to die. He died as you so that through death you would now live a new life through his resurrection. I didn't learn any of this in school. I learned this through the Bible. Then in Hebrews 8, it talks about a new covenant, a better covenant. Hebrews quotes Jeremiah and it says, in the old covenant, here's the problem is the law was outside of you. And it told you all the stuff that God would do or that love would always do or never do. And then the people would say, oh dear, we're not going to keep that, are we? We're going to try, but it's not going to go too hot. But in the new covenant, God will write his laws in your hearts. His, his instructions will be in your minds and in your hearts. It'll be an inside out covenant. And you will obey me. And every single one of you, from the, from the least to the greatest, will know me. This is the covenant I will make at that time. Better priest. Yes. One sacrifice for all time. He never dies. He always lives to intercede for us. Better covenant. We're transformed from the inside out so that we have an innate desire to love God and people. And if that's not there, you're probably not born again yet. Oh, you prayed a prayer. I guess you're saved. Oh, we, we dipped you in the water. I guess you're saved. And then in Hebrews 10, better sacrifices that actually are finished. And it says, by one sacrifice, I think it's Hebrews 10, 25, going from memory here, by one sacrifice, Jesus has forever made perfect those who are being made holy. And the refrain through almost the whole book of Hebrews is, draw near. Since Jesus is better than, draw near. Since the sacrifice, this is better, draw near. Oh, since he's a better priest, we can draw near. Since the covenant is better, now we can draw near. 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 And to the born-again heart, the cry of, of, the, the, the cry of hunger for the Lord, this is, how you, this is how you know something's wrong. If you got saved to escape hell, something's jacked up with that whole prop. Pro, that's, like that's messed up. Because the cry of a born-again heart is Abba. The cry of a born-again heart is not, well, I know I don't want that, and that's all I know so far. Look, that prayer got me saved, and then the moment I got saved, the whole thing switched from what I didn't want to what I did want. Because I got born again. In, in Romans chapter 8, 15 and 16, Paul says, we no longer, we're, we're no longer endowed with a fearful, punishment-oriented, get on your knees so that you don't, okay, I'm going to come close, God, don't strike me. I'm really sorry. Like when I was in high school, those were the only prayers I prayed. Because I wasn't saved. God help me not masturbate. God help me not cuss. God help me not be so mean. God help me not be a complete selfish jerk. But as a teenage boy, and all I knew was, God's holy, these are his rules, I'm terrible at keeping them. And so my prayers 
were not the prayers of someone who knows the Lord. They were the prayers of someone who had been handed a Christian worldview and who didn't know the Lord. My most common prayer was, God, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? That's jacked up, dude. If you walked into my office every time you saw me and started with an apology, that shows you that something's broken in our relationship. How messed up is that? If every single time I called Brian on the phone, our conversation was dominated by apologies, you would know that we're not taking good care of each other's hearts. Now, if I violate something in our relationship and I don't apologize for it, dude, that's way messed up. But what I'm saying is a relationship where there's not health is exposed by that kind of stuff. And I'm telling you right now, I was not saved. I had a Christian worldview, partially Christian worldview. God, I'm sorry, please help me to stop, blah, 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 blah. God, please forgive me. But years later, when I sold out and surrendered and said, "Uh, me in charge of my life is a disaster, please take over, something changed in an instant. And the next thing you know, I had a hunger for God. There's a few things that'll make Jesus boring to you, and one of them's not being saved. And if the Bible's boring to you, you're probably not on the front lines of obedience to him. That's just what I've noticed. Because when you're on the front lines of obedience to Jesus, you need answers, you need help, you need understanding for the things you're actually doing with your life. If you're reading the Bible sheerly out of a sense of religious guilt, you should, you ought to. Again, Old Covenant, laws written outside of you comes to you from the outside. You should do this. You should go to church. You should tithe. You should read your Bible. Well, I don't want to. Yeah, because you don't know the Lord yet. How about we get the real issue solved? How about you have first-person encounter with God? How about we get faith? How, How about we get relationship? So I smoked pot as a Christian, and no Christian was there telling me you shouldn't do that. But the Spirit of God within me said, something feels off. I'll never do that again. And then I didn't. The end. No guilt, no should, no Bible verse, just relationship with God dwelling on the inside that creates a compass that begins to, that begins to reorient my entire life. Now, I got discipled. There were people who invested in me, and that is essential. But what I'm trying to say is the real Christian life is not an external law. And then when you mess it up, we have an objective atoning sacrifice over here. It is a living Savior who indwells us. And why? How? Because he's not dead, because he's alive. And because he's alive, we all, with unveiled faces, with the eyes of our heart, are able to draw near and be transformed from the inside out by love, by direct contact, by frequent contact, hopefully constant contact. So this cry that suddenly comes out of you of Abba is a totally different cry. I'm telling you right now that part of the reason I relate to Romans 8 We've, no long, we've not been given a spirit of fearful slavery, but we've been given the spirit of sonship, of adoption, by which we cry, Abba. And then he says this, Romans 8, 16, how do you know you're saved? Well, I went to the front and I prayed the prayer and so-and-so dunked me. <laughs> Wrong. 
The Spirit, the Spirit of God, bears witness with my spirit that I'm God's kid. I remember my friend, dude who baptized me, that was, he's, he was, he's very cerebral. He's, man, he's, he's an intellectual. He's like, he's in his head. You know what I mean? I cry every day. I bet you he's cried once a decade or something. You know what I mean? And um, he was a teacher at a school. And he was sitting there reading these pa- this passage and going, but what if I'm not? 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 And all of a sudden he realized that every time he read scripture, he was simply reading it with the assumption that all of it applied to him. And he all of a sudden realized that the, the reason he was reading the Bible as though it all applied to him was because the Spirit of God in him was applying it to him. And he goes, by logical inference, he goes, oh my word, I'm in. <laughs> so I'm not talking about some dramatic emotional encounter, although for the love of Pete, we should be having those. We're not called to be lawyers. We're called to be witnesses. Amen. This is why it says, Wait. I'm raised, you have the gospel, I trained you for three years. Now stop, don't go, don't, don't go yet, don't do the work, don't do it yet. What do you mean, Jesus? You died, you rose, you're here, it's go time. And he says, no, wait, don't. I need you to be witnesses, not lawyers. I don't need you to be people with arguments, I don't need you to be people with doctrines, I don't need you to be people with rules and regulations, I don't need you to be people who give the book to the world. If I, needed to, if I wanted Bibles printed to the ends of the earth, I could do that without your help. But I want to send little Christs to the ends of the earth. I need witnesses, I need people who, they were standing there and then they saw the car accident and they go, oh, what did you see? This is what happened. Like they go to the blind man, the man Jesus healed who was blind from birth. What happened? Well, I don't know. I was blind, and now I can see. He's the one who prayed for me. I guess he's godly. Last time I checked, God didn't answer the prayers of sinners. I don't know. I was blind. Jesus touched me. Now I can see. Kind of hard to argue with that, isn't it? Yes. But let's say he started with the teleological argument for the existence of God. Why do you believe? Well, it's possible that there's any number of outcomes. There could be a universe in which there is no God. There could be a universe in which there is a God. The probabilities suggest blah, blah, blah. Or how about the argument from design? My hand looks like it's not just a product of random chance, but it looks like it's designed that I have an opposable thumb and I can pick things up and there are nerve endings and blah, 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 blah. How about this one, though? I was in a desperate place. I was all alone. I was trying to find, is there meaning to my life? And then I encountered God. I felt love come inside me. Peace flooded my soul, and he's been giving me direction and answering my prayers and transforming me every day since then. You can argue against that. You can say, well, you used drugs. It warped your... You could still argue against that, but you're never going to argue me out of it. Amen. Good for you. Good for me. Yes. I didn't do nothing. No, you didn't, but you, Jesus did, but you, you told me. And what I'm saying is this. If I believe because of arguments, my faith is only as strong as those arguments. But if I believe because of encounter, my faith is as strong as the reality of Jesus. I'm not against arguments. 
But I'm definitely against not seeking after an encounter, especially when Jesus says, wait 50 days, spirit's coming, and then you'll be clothed with power, and then you'll be, then you'll be enabled to be witnesses. Of what? Because Jesus is alive. The greatest need of the world is Jesus. The greatest need of the church is Jesus. Sometimes we get so busy trying to save the world before we've encountered Jesus. And I'm not saying it's one or the other, but there's an order to this thing. And if we're to live on the right side of the cross, which is to say, if we're to live inside the resurrection, then we are called to be people who draw near and take advantage of the reality that we, with unveiled faces, can. We have the right, we have the privilege, we have the access to come and dwell, to come and hear a word from heaven that's authentic, to come and sit with our Bible, open it, meditate and say, come Holy Spirit, make this written word living word for me. I want to know you. 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 You say I'm raised up with Christ and seated in heavenly realms far above all power and authority. Why am I so grumpy and unhappy? Help. I want to know you. So this is, what, this is why Paul prays the way he prays. For this reason, this is Ephesians chapter one, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I haven't stopped thanking God for you and remembering you in my prayers that, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom. Yeah, but I already have the Holy Spirit. Well, I know that. Have you ever had that argument? Hey, come to this meeting, the Lord's moving. I have the spirit in my house just as much as there. Why are you resisting? Man, I heard Rich Nathan talk about getting baptized in the Holy Spirit afresh. If you want to use that language, if that helps your theology, accept it better. He sat at a meeting and watched the spirit of God come on all these people that he thought of as stable people. Some person he didn't know was shaking on the ground and he was like, what a loon. And then his buddy, who lived like two miles, worked two miles from where he grew up, stable businessman in the community, never did anything weird or went on any adventures, to quote the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Suddenly, this guy walks up, and he's on the ground shaking, going crazy. And Rich's first thought was, I don't know this nut job. Oh, no, not this guy. Oh, no. Oh, no. This is bad. Not him. He's so stable. <sighs> what a shame. And Rich is creeping further and further away from the stage, and he's leaning up against the back wall, just watching the foolishness. Just watching the foolishness. Just feeling so bad about it. Why? Why? Why all the stupidity? And then all of a sudden he feels like there's a hand pushing him down. It's like a, a huge hand the size of a man just sort of pressing down on him. And he's like, uh-uh, mm-mm, mm-mm, mm. He's fighting it, man. He's got his, getting his legs into it. Got to position myself here for lifting. It's like we're working in nursing here. We're going to get a good, right position. You can do it. You can do it. You don't have to. Here we go. Nope, I'm not. Uh. <clears throat> no, sir. Nope, not going to do it. Mm. His friend walks up to him and says, Rich, why are you resisting the Holy Spirit? Because I prayed 
and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for revival for years and years and years and years. And when it came, I was offended by the, by the form it took. That's why. And he started to weep and he let himself go and he hit the floor and made a mess. The reason this matters is because in in Acts chapter 1, Luke writes this, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote to you about all that Jesus had begun to do and teach. Now that he's alive, now that he's pouring out himself into people, he continues to do and teach through us. If we let him. Can you imagine dying with this testimony? I got saved, God. I went to work every day. I got up, did my job, fussed my wife, had some friends, did a couple things I enjoyed, and then I died. Dude, I don't even want to watch the movie of your life. Well, I got saved, pastored a little church, preached some sermons, dealt with some people who had problems. We had some conflicts. We figured a couple things out that work a little better than others. Finally figured out a couple ways we could make decisions that'd be a little bit more peaceable. Watched some Netflix, died. Dude, I don't even want to watch the movie of that life, much less live it. Recently, I've been trying to figure out how do I know when I'm watching a show if it's oriented at, if it's aimed at teenagers? Like, you just know. You just can tell if this is aimed at teenagers. This is going to feel like I'm insulting teenagers. So I'm trying to figure out if I can say it in a way that it doesn't feel that way. But here's how I know. All the characters are obsessed with trying to figure out if they're special or not. They have this brooding, you know, someone who journals their feelings so much, trying to figure out. And then then they find out they have magic powers or they were an alien. And they go, I knew it. That's why I don't fit in. I'm so special and important. And the action's happening all around the character, but instead of the action being the point, the character's own self-awareness is really the point. And then all the interactions with the other characters are usually equally self and sort of self-centered and narcissistic as well. It's like everybody's trying to figure out if they're special or not. And if I could be so self-critical of Gateway and our charismatic orientation is a lot, if I'm honest, a lot of our praying and prophesying is so oriented to making people feel like they're special, which is necessary. It's a stage of development to know who you are as you're heading out into the world, as you're making life your own, as you're choosing your path for how you want to spend your productive years. It's an important stage of development. But if 20 years from now, all the prophecies are still about how special you are and how unique you are and whether you matter and your feelings, whether it's going to be okay or not, and we haven't actually gotten on to making sacrifices and saving the girl, stopping the killer and defusing the bomb and at, with, at the cost of our life if need be. In other words, a real story. Sometimes I, I just kind of, I want to ask that question like, Jesus died and rose and put some tools here and put some, put some power here and put some opportunity here that the story, the, the pretty interesting story, isn't it an interesting, like you read Jesus' story 
It's worth reading. And he put his spirit in us so that that same story would continue in our lives, that there would be exploits. If I could put it this way, David killed a Goliath, and then David drew 30 mighty men around him, and they did exploits. Jesus defeated our Goliath of Satan, sin, and death, and then he empowered this group of people around him, and they continued that same giant killing, devil casting out, sacrifice-bearing life. If your life's not worth making a movie about, there's something wrong. And like, you know, you've noticed like, you can have someone who in a movie is a, a, just a, a turd the whole movie. But if at the end they sacrifice their life to save some people, it's all forgiven, it's all redeemed. You're like, yeah. And then we all go, we know he's in heaven because he learned how to love finally. Have I said anything today? If when Jesus died, heaven's electrical transformer shorted out and some people came back to life and rocks split, then what in the world was released upon us when he rises from the dead, ascends to the Father, and we're in him? And Paul says, look, I'm making it my prayer. I never even finished reading that prayer. That's the problem. I was like, something, something feels unfinished. Oh, yeah, you stop reading. He keeps praying that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. You're a treasure. You ain't trash. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named not only in this age but in the one to come and put all things under Jesus' feet for the sake of the church which is his body the fullness of him the church is the fullness of Jesus all I'm trying to say here is Now that you're saved, Paul's begging God. That's probably not the right language. I'm just trying to figure out a way to talking about passionate entreaty. Paul's begging God that the spirit would wake the church up to the reality in which they find themselves lest they waste their lives. Wake us up. I'll just pray it. Father, wake us up to our position and to our opportunity Holy Spirit, we invite you to open the eyes of our heart to see every day the small things of the day, the big things of the day, in light of who we are now that we are in you. And I don't ask that we not get revelation of identity, but I ask God that we walk out our identity. I ask, Father, that we live as the sons and daughters instead of brooding over it and, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. That we settle it. And we walk with a boldness and a confidence that we carry Christ. And God, I'm asking that we would take stock of our lives and make radical choices so our lives don't look like good old American Mennonite lives, but they look like Jesus in the Gospels. That we would flow with the wind of your spirit, that we would would love, that we would lay our lives down 
That when we would walk into the room, demons that were completely fine with what religion's been doing for 20 years would suddenly have to manifest. And that we would develop the right heart to view every moment as a moment where where you're here and it's good and we're okay. More, God. I pray for hunger. I pray for a heart to go on journey again. I pray for little boxes to be decimated and destroyed again. I pray you'd make us dangerous again. I pray for you to mess us up again. I pray for you to make fools of us again. I pray for you to keep teaching us again. It's time to go on journey. Not only must there be more than than this, you're worth more than this, Jesus. Let the lamb receive the reward of his suffering. You died for more than this. You rose for more than this. You didn't die so we could live for ourselves, so that we could live comfortable lives of respectable faith. More, God. More. More.